I was realizing this morning is, I don't want to hit this, don't know what it does, so I'm going to stick it over there. Um, I was realizing this morning that in 20 years of ministry, I've never been called to fill in for anybody who's been sick. You know why? Because I was always in the pulpit on Sunday morning, and I just on a few occasions had to call people in for, uh, for when I was sick, so... Um, Mike contacted me just a little while before we did our leaf peeping tour yesterday up in the mountains, and I thought, well, I, you know, 20 years worth of sermons, I got a stack that high, I can just thumb through it. Well, couldn't find a single one that matched what I wanted to talk about this morning. Found a bunch of them that conglomerated, but I wasn't going to sit up here with with 20 or so pieces of paper. You see, a few weeks ago, I had a relatively interesting encounter with someone that I had never met in my life. Old lady in her, probably in her mid-80s. But I had become an important part of her great-grandchildren's lives over the last few years because I had the privilege to be their pastor and became uh, intertwined with their family when, when a brother died. And the lady and I were talking, and, and um, she said that her husband had been part of the North Georgia Conference and that he had ended up leaving the ministry back in the 70s. But the church that he left the ministry from was my grandfather's church and my grandmother's church. The church I was baptized in in 1973. And this man left the ministry sometime in 76. See, that particular church had never really been a cranky church. At all. I mean, most of the time it had been a good church. And from my memories as a child, uh, going there with my grandparents, even during uh, transition time when that part of, of Atlanta, Gresham Park, Clifton area, was transitioning from uh, due to white flight, was becoming uh, more African-American in nature. Um, I remember that being a good place. But there is one thing that can stir up a Methodist church just about more than anything else. And that's when you got a bad parsonage. Fortunately, y'all don't. <laughs> you got a housing allowance, praise God for that. Everybody needs their own home. Um, so we were talking, and, uh, and I didn't quite know yet which church her husband had left the ministry from, and, and they were asking about my issues and having to take disability and uh, because my, the people that I've been their pastor from was, uh, had invited us to uh, their daughter's birthday party. And, you know, this is some, my last church before Red Wine, I got stuck in a pretty rough parsonage, and I'd lived in some rough ones, the parsonage was nice, but I didn't appreciate it having chicken manure thrown on my house uh, once a month, which was really bad. And 
probably made my lung disease a whole lot worse, even though the, the bishop and everybody knew that I had lung disease because I'd been putting it in my uh, fill-out sheet ever since I was diagnosed with it uh, at the age of 30. And yeah, just, we just kind of had one of them little gripe sessions. It turned out that the church that he left the ministry from, my grandfather's church, they were in a battle because the parsonage was a piece of junk. It had mold in it, had other problems in it. Now, there are some more things that the conference has done to ensure the parsonages are better. They still don't enforce them real well. But this one, back way back when, you just got what you lived in, and that was it. And this one was in bad shape. And the SBR committee, pastor parish relations back then, voted right down the middle for the pastor to stay or the pastor to leave. My grandfather would have no business of ever allowing anyone to be harmed. And I remember maybe about 10 years ago, my mother talking about an incident where my grandfather had to stand up for a pastor because the parsonage was in bad shape. It was during one of the times that I was living in a rough parsonage. And, you know, that stuck with her. And I remember her talking about that, you know, that that church had a bad parsonage and the pastor's family was sick and other things were going on. And eventually that pastor said, I've had enough and I left the ministry. But she remembered that my grandfather stood up and said, this is wrong, this is wrong, and this is wrong. And I also remember stories about my grandfather when, when blacks were moving into the Gresham Park and the Clifton area and started coming to Clifton United Methodist Church that anytime somebody would do something derogatory, that he would have no part of it, and he'd call him out. This five foot six, five foot seven, bald man who was a paratrooper and a cook who parachuted into the invasion of Sicily in World War II. He wouldn't have any part of it. And I also remember when I was little, getting in my grandfather's old Ford Pinto, which now we all know wasn't the smartest world, you know. <laughs> you, you, you ding the back of one of those things and, you know, the, the jokes would flare about it being just a bomb on wheels. But I, I remember going into Cabbage Town. You know where Cabbage Town is in Atlanta? Well, it wasn't always the kind of up and coming place it is now. It was a section of poverty. Uh, and I remember going with him as a child to visit with folks in that area, the sick, the shut-in, those that were different, those he, he, that was different from the culture he grew up in. But his culture that he grew up in was kind of tough. He grew up in a dirt floor home with six or seven siblings in Bethlehem, Georgia, I just thought that was an interesting encounter um, because, you know, all ministers have that moment where they think, I can't take this anymore. 
especially over something when your house is is a wreck and your family's in danger and you just think this is ridiculous and the bishop won't stand up and DS won't do their job and 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 we're being stalked and hassled and harassed and I'm sucking in mold all the time and and there's holes in the floor and in the ceiling and it won't be repaired and you just think this is it but my granddaddy relied every bit on his on his belief system to say that ain't going to happen in my church. In my church. And the reason I bring him up on this particular morning is because three of my favorite holidays and three holidays that are very important to me are happening this week. Within a week's period. You know, we're sitting there running through your mind, wait a minute, I only know about one holiday that happened, and not everybody really thinks that's a good holiday, Halloween. So let's look at the others. By definition, uh, the word holiday, um, if you break it apart, is holy day, something very sacred, something very important. So on Tuesday, Tuesday's a holy day for me coming up. A day I get to exercise my right to vote in a government for the people and of the people based on inalienable rights given to us by God. Man, if that isn't a holy day, I don't know what is that my ancestors ensured. So all the way back when, to the beginning of this nation, I've got ancestors that fought for that right in that I stand on their shoulders. They fought in the Revolutionary War, 1812, and, and um, a good chunk of my um, family fought in the Tennessee and Alabama vedette, Alabama vedette uh, up in the northwest corner of Georgia to preserve those rights. That's a holy day for me. I'm going to exercise, I'm going to put on my American flag shirt, and, and now I've got a son that's in the Army. I'm going. I didn't vote early because I want to stand in line on Election Day. Because I can. I don't have any other commitments. <laughs> I just, I can do it this go around, you know. And then there was another holiday that I didn't realize how important it was till I experienced the death of a spouse. And that was Halloween. Now, y'all say, wait a minute, preacher. Halloween ain't a Christian holiday. Well, I beg to differ. It is. It just got hijacked by other instances in society. Like many of our days get hijacked and turned into something they're not. Um, Halloween is actually piggybacked on another important holiday that we'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, all or All Saints Day, uh, the Hallowed Day. You see, the Catholic Church um, was an expert in the early days of its formation of taking um, religious days that were important to the culture and Christianizing them so that the culture would I feel like they weren't completely robbed of their identity and who they are. That's what I find so amazing about 
Christianity is that when, in my opinion, in my humble opinion for whatever it's worth, is that Christianity is the most adaptable of all the faiths in the world. And of course, my opinion, the best, the one you need to follow. But it can be applied to any culture without destroying the culture. Now, unfortunately, that has not been the case. You look at the conquistadors and, and Manifest Destiny and other places around the world where um, missionaries went in and tried to destroy the culture of the community. And then you look at other examples like in India where the greatest Methodist missionary of all time, E. Stanley Jones, came in and applied Christianity to the Indian culture and developed the ashram. And he... Um, made a huge difference in the Indian, Asian Indian community by, by allowing them to keep their culture but applying Christianity in his mindset. Mother Teresa did the same thing. Who would have ever thought that the largest state funeral in the history of the Asian or the Indian subcontinent would have been given to a four-foot-tall Albanian nun and a Hindu-Muslim-Buddhist nation because she was that important to them. So the Catholic Church came in in certain areas of um, northwestern Europe where there were Druids and pagans and other issues. They had a a weird holiday called Cywain, and, and the Catholics came in, and because, you know, everybody likes their parties, they're, they're end of the harvest parties, and, and their springtime parties, and their summer parties, and, and things like that, so people aren't going to give those up. So Cywain kind of um, came at the end of the harvest, and, and the Catholic Church said, well, let's place a Christian holiday there, All Saints Day. And Halloween is actually All Hallows' Eve. Old English would say Een instead of Eve. So All Hallows' Eve shortened kind of like we do y'all and possibly became Halloween. And they would dress up the night before the saints. They celebrated the saints and their costumes and whatever to scare away the devil. Now, if you've ever been to an old country church, they stomp the devil, you know. You know what I'm talking about? If you've ever experienced that, they stomp the devil. They stomp him out. One of my favorite stories is about um, uh, there was an old there was an old preacher that was really just laying down every Sunday. He would get up and preach about how awful the devil was, and and every Sunday it was the same thing. Face just glowing red with anger and fire and brimstone and Satan's going to come get you and, and the devil's here present and even in the midst of our congregation, you know, watch out the devil. So like any good mischievous teenage boys, some of the youth were sitting on the back pew of the church and they decided, well, one Sunday they're going to dress up like the devil and they're going to wait till that preacher starts throwing down about the devil and how the devil was going to get them. And if they didn't watch out, 
And when they all knew the cue because it was going to happen, and as soon as the preacher started going on about the devil, they jumped through the windows in the back door of that church with, in their devil costumes and their pitchforks, and they came running around. Pandemonium happened in the church. Everybody's running around, and they run up to big old Sister Bertha better than you at the front of the pew. And when I'm sitting there poking her with the pitchfork, she says, Now you listen here. I've been on your side the whole time. You know, so there's a history of screaming about the devil and trying to scare the devil after, you know, we got our hand clapped for Jesus and all the other things that people do. So Halloween is actually, instead of all the gore and the nastiness and the vampires and the witches and all the other things that go along, it was actually a holiday to dress up to scare away the devil. And then the next day was the solemn sacred day. Kind of like the difference between Fat Tuesday and, um, and Ash Wednesday. Fat Tuesday was the party the night before Ash Wednesday, and so it was Halloween. But I discovered that Halloween is the first holiday. Now, many of you have already thought about this, but it's the first holiday to start the holiday season of family time. It's the time when parents get out with their kids and, and dress up in costumes and go door to door and trick or treat. The whole family generally participates in that. And it's a whole lot stressful than, it's a lot less stressful than Thanksgiving and a lot less stressful than Christmas. And then, you know, it's just good, clean fun that sometimes get hijacked. And I, I learned the importance of that holiday that first year of losing a spouse. It was hard. So Halloween is a sacred day for me, family day. And I'm so thankful that churches do trunk or treats and schools do that because it kind of brings back what it was meant to, to be. So... Holiday number two that I've talked about that of, is of such importance to me this week. The right to participate in my government. And a government that, in its written documents, is based on the thought that we have an inalienable rights given to us by God. Halloween, <laughs> the night before uh, we celebrate the saints to chase all evil away. <laughs> That's what it's supposed to be, to chase all evil away. That's what Halloween's supposed to be about. And then there's All Saints Day. So today, there are churches all around the world that are celebrating today as a day to celebrate those who have gone on. Those who now are in in the presence, the spiritual presence of God. We're always in the presence of God and always in the arms of God, but those who are now seeing God face to face, like Moses said, I see God face to face as if a friend. And I think about those people. I did not really practice, start practicing All Saints Day, but they didn't know that much about it. Um, until I was at the Ackworth Church, which was a good five years into my ministry. 
a very important day. They would put pictures up of those who had gone on the year before on the screen, and we'd list them and call them out and call out their names, and we'd reflect upon their lives. I would adapt that later on in the ministries. I'd have people bring in pictures of their ancestors and, and those who were important to, to them in their life as, as a saint of God, not in the Catholic definition of a saint where they've had to do some kind of miracle attributed to them and then, and then the Pope tells them it's a saint. But you know what I mean. Those saintly people have made a difference in their lives. The ones who history will never remember, but you do. The ones who made the difference. Like my grandfather. I don't remember any Halloween from my childhood when my grandfather was alive that Troy Edwards did not show up to see what kind of costume I had on. And most of the time, they were terrible. That was the days of those horrible plastic masks or you'd wrap yourself in ace bandages to be a mummy or just put a sheet over you and poke some holes in it for a ghost, and it all worked. You know, just fun days. So I, I don't remember a Halloween that that didn't happen. And then I remember that going on with, uh, with my uh, children. And then even like last week, what we did for... Halloween, we went to some friends' house with good Christian folks, and the kids went off and did their thing. We sat around a campfire and laughed, and, and it was a good time. But now we look towards All Saints Day. It is the day which we remember the shoulders of whom we have stood on because of their faith. The ones who have built the foundation which we experience in the kingdom of God who have gone before us. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. I've got a sermon that I do on, on what's in a name. Talk about Native American naming. And, and how names used to mean something. We just didn't give a kid a name because we thought it was cool or the neatest trend. In 1975, Jennifer was the most popular name. Uh, and in the mid-'70s, Jennifer was the most popular name in America, the United States, because there was an actress. I think her name was Jennifer Ireland or something. I don't know because I was only like two years old, but my sister was born, and she was named Jennifer because... All of them. Think about how many Jennifers you know named from the middle 70s because it was a cool name. And now there are designer names that are out. Don't mean nothing. But there was a time when your name meant something. My name, Andrew, is Greek for strong and manly. <laughs> there was a time when that really applied to the physique that I once owned. <laughs> but as I aged, I knew that it means something completely different. Because I look upon those men who I think were strong and manly men 
and a five foot seven balding old man who was my grandfather. And those are the foundations that we stand on. So what's in that name? Native American names meant something at one point. The way our surnames meant something at one point, the name meant something. That's why we still have the practice of surnames. There's a lot of um, uh, American, African Americans that are named Jefferson because Thomas Jefferson meant something to that family at one point. And then there are some that took back and found out what their historical ancestors' names were. If you look at the Hispanic culture, did you know most Hispanics keep uh, the female aspect of their last name? It's a different culture than what we have, but their names mean something. And of course, the Cherokees always said, in their matriarchal culture as well, that you can really only be sure who your mother is. So they kept that part of their name. And then there was others who were given a new name. In the Hebrew, Hebrew culture, your name was often changed at a certain point. Abram to Abraham. Sarai to Sarah. The name meant something. So when we talk about names, sometimes they even have a, a negative connotation. If you know somebody that was named Mud, one of their ancestors did something really bad, <laughs> and their name became Mud. So I think about the names. Right now, my name, last name is Witt. But I'm also a Parker. I'm a Thompson, Frederick Thompson, Revolutionary War soldier. I am a Craig. The matriarchal name of my Cherokee grandmother. I'm an Adkins. I'm an Edwards. I'm a Newton. Now, from what I understand, though, my great-grandfather Newton was a horrible man. But he's in that lineage. What's in your name? Who do you stand on? Who in the world do you want to be like? So... Those names are very heavy in my thoughts this morning on All Saints Day. The sacred Sunday where we think about those who have gone before. In Judges chapter 12, verse 10, uh, chapter 12 actually starts, out with, starts off with the death of Joshua and all of his generation that, that has gone before him. Starts off with the death of Joshua. And moves on to, to verse 10, and it said, And after the generation, that generation had all gone on to be with their fathers, and they were buried, there arose a generation who did not know the Lord. Somebody had forgotten their ancestral story. See, the Old Testament, the, the historical books, aren't so much about um, all the magical things that God did. It's the history of of the Hebrew people. 
to remind them of where they came on, on the backs of them that they stood on and what they were supposed to do. And somebody quit teaching it. And a generation disappeared. Or a generation arose that did not know God. And they'd forgotten the saints who had gone before. They didn't teach their children. It's very important for us to continue to teach our kids so that they will then remember those stories. What happened to the saints that went before them. In my case, the Thompsons, the Edwards, the Witts, the Adkins, the Crazes. Who are they? Japanese proverb says, tigers die and leave their skins. People die and leave their names. But really, your name is just the sum of who you are. What have you done for the kingdom? September 12, 1962, at Rice University, JFK said these words. <coughs> Those who came before us made certain that this country rode the first wave of the Industrial Revolution the first waves of modern invention, the first waves of nuclear power, and this generation does not intend to founder in the backwash of the coming age of space. We mean to be part of it. We mean to lead it. For the eyes of the world now look into space, the moon, to the planets beyond, and we have vowed that we shall not see it governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace. We have vowed that we shall not see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, but with instruments of knowledge and understanding. We choose to go to the moon. We chose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our enemies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept. We are unwilling to postpone. And one which we intend to win. And our others' goals too. Many years ago, the British explorer, George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked, why did he want to climb it? He said, because it is there. Well, space is there, we're going to climb it, and the moon and the planets are there, new hopes for knowledge and peace are there, and therefore we set sail to ask for God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which mankind has never embarked. Now take a moment take all the space language out of there and put kingdom language into that speech. We want to be a generation to take on the challenge of the Great Commission. To be built upon the names of our ancestors who have built this kingdom. My Methodist lineage is stretched back to a revolutionary war hero who was in American uh, history before American Methodism even happened. And then he was a founding member of, of the Bethlehem Church in the 1830s. Where do you stand on continuing to build the house of God that started on the foundation of those saints who have gone before Names lost to history, names you remember, and names that history will always remember. So before I read this morning's scripture, I want us to take a moment 
you call out the names, kind of popcorn prayer like, of those saints who have made a difference in your life as we remember them on this All Saints Day. Just a moment. And offer their names to God. Troy Odell Edwards. Now hear the word of God from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us all lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, band, if you'll come on up, and sing about this great cloud of witnesses. Whenever I read this verse, it really does bring a picture of an old church choir in my mind, of the old brush arbors of the Methodist story, of the Southern Baptist story as well, and the Assemblies of God, and, and all of those great denominations that once just got up to sing in the old clabbered churches where a lot of souls were saved and a lot of lives were changed. An old church choir. So great a cloud of witnesses.